0: With the sports world on pause, we've teamed Greg Linnelli and Eric Erlinson together for Power Lunch, an hour to talk lightning hockey, the NHL, and how you're coping with the coronavirus. This is Power Lunch, exclusively on Lightning Power Play via the iHeartRadio app. Center point headman, right to Kudrow.
1: Score! Patrick Kudrow!
2: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Power Lunch. Greg Linelli, Eric Kronst, and Steve Ersnick behind the scenes. We go for one hour, and we've got a lot to discuss with you during this time. Rick Peckham is going to be joining us in about 15 minutes to talk all things NHL. We may even ask Rick House's golf game, assuming that's what he is doing these days. And later on in the program... Gary Bettman had a sit down with Ron McClain from Sportsnet. We're going to play some sound bites throughout the broadcast about what that interview got into. Gary Bettman, I thought, hit on some very interesting points, E, that we discussed yesterday regarding the draft and travel and the logistics involved in all of these things as the NHL gets a little closer to maybe starting to figure out when they're going to come back, E, and what it's going to look like.
1: Yeah, good afternoon, Greg. It's, um, you know, we continue to see this path, this light, if we can, uh, somewhat at the end of the tunnel, and still a lot of things up in the air, but starting to hear a little bit more solid plans. Uh, you know, we talked yesterday about the draft and that discussion that they had, had about potentially still holding that in June. And I know he came out of that interview Gary, Gary Bettman did and called it a trial balloon. But the one thing to really take out of all of that is the potential of neutral site in terms of NHL cities, you know, they've kind of done away with the idea of the South Dakotas, the New Hampshire's or the Saskatchewan's, any of those. Um, but to, to hear that there's there's a little bit more of a it's plan, I guess, a plan in place, if they get the go ahead, I think you're starting to see that stuff get narrowed down a little bit. And you know, from a sports standpoint, uh, certainly we're not through what we have to deal with with the coronavirus and everything like that. But to, to hear the plan start to come to fruition a little bit and get closer to that, I, I think, again, just from a sports standpoint, it's pretty exciting to hear that we might get that resolution to this season as odd as it might be before we can, you know, we'll have a Stanley Cup champion crowned. it sounds like.
2: Yeah, And the question becomes, where will these games be played? I think that's one of the questions. And, you know, as we continue to work our way through this, it it sounds like the non-hockey markets, while I think an interesting idea because of maybe location and maybe not such a huge outbreak with COVID-19, you wonder if that really does make the most sense and if the NHL can start looking at places that actually have NHL teams as to uh, where to hold these games if they decide to, to select a few locations.
1: Yeah, and it sounds like it will be NHL cities. That uh, certainly is what uh, Gary Bettman discussed yesterday. and then Emily Kaplan from ESPN uh, reported that the three front runners, and this there's by division here. So you can kind of start to see a map a little bit. One of them would be Edmonton, of course, Pacific Division. We know that they're in the playoffs. Another one would be Minnesota in the Central Division, uh, not solidly in a playoff position, but if you're talking expanded playoff situations, Minnesota might be in that mix. And Raleigh was the other one, um, potentially, again, Metropolitan Division, so there's that situation. The one curious one to me is that there was no clear-cut front runner for the Atlantic Division. And, what do you make of you that? Know, if, Well, if you're you're starting to kind of dissect and see that path, that all the three venues that I just mentioned were playoff teams or potential playoff teams, well, in the Atlantic, that narrows it down to four, right? It's Toronto, it's Boston, it's Tampa Bay, and it's Sunrise. Uh, I I think with a number of corona cases reported in Massachusetts, you can probably take Boston out of the equation. Toronto, even though they have held the World Cup, of hockey uh, just a few years ago and they certainly have the hotel accommodations and the practice facilities and all the stuff that would be needed even if you held you know more than just four teams if you were if you're doing this by division if you wanted to expand that out Toronto could certainly handle that but there's still some uncertainty to how Ontario uh, is dealing with the coronavirus uh, and there certainly we know the outbreaks that are taking place down in Miami-Dade County uh, in that area where the Panthers play and then you have Tampa you know if you're talking four playoff teams You know, Tampa Bay has a lot of stuff that you would need. Uh, Again, we're just kind of speculating here, but if we're talking those four teams, you have world-class hotels right by the rink with the Marriott Waterside. Uh, You have the Westin. I don't know where construction is right now. The JW Marriott that's being built right next to the rink. I I understand it's close to being ready to open. Uh, So you have three world-class hotels right there, uh, right by the rink. You have the Ice... uh, IcePlex, TGA's IcePlex out in Brandon, formerly the Ice Sports Forum. And if potentially, too, you have the facility up in Wesley Chapel that you could use. So there's a lot of those facilities near here. So I don't wonder if Tampa Bay isn't being discussed at the league level as a possible Atlantic division host. If you're just going to do four teams, four teams per division, um, you know, per playoff format, I, I would have to think that Tampa Bay would be right in the middle of that.
2: Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, when you factor in that Tampa Bay is a place that is known for holding big events. They understand yeah. what it takes to accommodate a lot of different people and a lot of different fan bases. Steve Ersnick, our producer, brought up a really good point when we're maybe going back and forth as to why maybe Tampa Bay would be that logical place. And maybe the one drawback is, you know, as it would be this time of year, would be the temperature and what would the yeah. ice be like. But I don't know, I think half the battle is finding out who can pull off such an event and accommodate so many different people, and, you know, if you get that part down, uh, is that something you can work with, even if it is uh, the challenge of getting the ice to where it needs to be?
1: Well, on top of that, you mentioned how Tampa Bay has become, you know, known for hosting the event. Certainly, they've hosted two Frozen Fours at Amelie Arena. So that's on their list, Uh, a couple of Super Bowls, including one that's scheduled to come up in February. So they're hosting big events. And let's not forget, when the All-Star Game was here a couple years ago, normally most cities, most hosts get pretty good lead time at least a year out before they know they're going to host an event like that where the Lightning got basically 10 months because it didn't go to go to the Olympics to put that event together, and how well did that come off uh, as well? So if you're talking about trying to put a plan of action together in a short period of time. You know, the the management and the staff, Steve Griggs and everybody with the lighting have shown that they can put that together. And this certainly wouldn't be a grand scale event by any stretch of the imagination. We know that probably be without crowds, uh, without fans in the stands. They would probably prohibit anybody from crowding around the building outside. There's no watch parties taking place out on the plaza like they've done in the past. So we're not talking grand scale like that. But to put a sort of plan of action together in a very short period of time, I think that the Lightning and the city of Tampa have shown that they can pull that off in a short yeah. period of time.
2: Yeah, and I think Gary Bettman would have a lot of confidence in Mr. Vinnick and what his team could do to pull something like that off. And then Mr. Vinnick, six months later, can say, you know, we talked about an outdoor game here in Tampa. Let's try and work that yeah. out. Remember what we did for you when this pandemic hit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. we need the synthetic ice probably in a little better shape. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Um, so there's, there's a lot of... Um, I think there are a lot of reasons why Tampa would be a good spot and would be the right spot, but I think that that whole angle, when it comes to an Atlantic Division team possibly hosting a bunch of games, is a pretty interesting one. And I think, you know, when you take a look at at the four teams we just discussed, yeah, Lightning probably makes the most sense.
1: Well, and, and I'm, it, it would be curious too because one of the um, points about Edmonton. Obviously, it's Edmonton, but they have a rink, a brand new rink up there that's attached to a hotel, right? So theoretically, players wouldn't even have to leave a facility. They go from the hotel right. that has a couple of restaurants in it and then go over to the rink and whatever. So there's that attraction. Remember, we had Mike uh, or uh, Mike Harrington on a couple of weeks ago in regards to what's on Buffalo. Now, Buffalo is not a playoff team. Even under an expanded playoff format, they would not be in that mix. But they do have that type of a facility. And I don't know what the uh, situation is health-wise up in upstate New York. Certainly we know what's going on in New York City. But in upstate New York, I'm not sure of what the numbers are there. But they have one of those type of facilities as yeah. well because you have the Key Bank Arena, and you can walk from the Key Bank Arena to the Harbor Center, which is where the practice facility is they could utilize that Uh, we know that they've held tournaments on that Um, you know the women's league plays there they've held some international tournaments there and then you can walk from there straight to the hotel that's a Marriott that's right there so that's an intriguing situation but again that's not a playoff team you know that I would think that there should have to be or could be if it's possible some benefits to teams that have made the playoffs to maybe try and recoup some you know money um, you know, maybe put some employees to work for a couple of weeks. As, as we know, uh, some people have been furloughed. I know I don't think that's the case with the Lightning as of yet. Um, but, you know, so there's a lot, of, a lot of interesting kind of scenarios to kind of kick
2: around uh, in terms of making this happen and pulling it off. So I wonder what the biggest criteria would be for the National Hockey League when it comes to choosing those destinations, assuming it's in an NHL market, because most ice at that point the, the conditions are going to be pretty rough because you're dealing with the summer months, some more than others. Yeah. Obviously, you probably want to find places that don't have hot spots for COVID-19. And then to your point about location with hotels being very close to the arena, uh, I'm curious if you had to rank some of those things, biggest priority to not as big, what would it be? I mean, obviously the safety of everybody, first and foremost, So you're not going to a place that's a hot spot, I would think, yep. with... You know, the virus. But you also probably have to understand is there no way around the ice being not great,
1: regardless of where you go? Well, especially if you're talking about playing multiple games in a day. Now, the one thing about the ice situation, if you don't have fans in the stands, that takes away 18,000 human bodies warming the place up. So it would stay a little bit colder in that aspect. So that, that kind of takes one challenge away a little bit. Uh, we know certainly here in Tampa with the humidity, ice and humidity, they're not the best of friends. They're not like you and me, Greg. Um, they don't get along very well. Uh, so that would be a challenge if you're looking at a market like here because we know how brutal the heat and humidity can be during those 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 really hot summer months. Um, so that would certainly be something to kind of deal with. Um you know, in, in the long term uh, or in the short term. So um, <clears throat> I, I think the ice conditions have to be the first and foremost. Uh, I, I know that um, Gary Bettman talked about playing up to three games a day. If You know, they, they still kind of kicked around the idea of finishing the regular season. I don't know how realist, realistic that's going to be when we get to – You know, June or July, whenever this happens, I know early July has kind of been the date kind of thrown around there uh, with the possibility maybe of opening up camps in the middle of June or or whatever it is. So uh, I, I think the ice conditions have to be first and foremost and then proximity has to be, you know, how close can the players stay to the rink? Is there an opportunity to make sure that they are as quarantined, quote-unquote, as much as possible? I think that's an idea that you kind of have to keep in mind as well because the whole idea here is to keep this thing safe, safe for the participants, safe for the coaches, safe for everybody involved with the situation. And the, the, the more you can keep everybody away from each other and keep them quarantined and not run the risk of pushing – um, you know this virus into in this scenario I, I think that's the other thing that have to be considered. So ice conditions I think is going to be at the top of the list and I think secondly is going to be proximity and how close and how much can you keep players quarantined. and that's why we go back to Tampa in that aspect because you have you know the three hotels right there at the rink and you have the practice facility out in Brandon that has two sheets of ice as well and it has the facilities we know the the brand new, uh, renovations they just did to the uh, TG Ice IcePlex last year, and it, it is a world-class workout facility there as well. And then you have to take in, you know, the sanit- sanit- sanitization, if I can spit that out in terms of making sure everything's clear after somebody uses it. So uh, lots of things to consider, but I think ice and proximity to hotels and that kind of stuff would be high on that list. All right, let's go ahead and take a break right now. You are listening to Power Lunch here on Lightning Power Play. He is Greg Linnelli. I am Eric Erlinson, The television voice of the Lightning, Rick Peckham, is going to join us when we come back right after this.
0: An hour of hockey talk to get you through social distancing. This is Power Lunch with Greg Linnelli and Eric Erlinson on Lightning Power Play.
1: Welcome back to Power Lunch here on Lightning Power Play. I'm Eric Rolinson alongside Greg Linelli as we get you through another week of pause in the NHL action. And it's time now to check in with our good friend from Fox Sports on the television voice of the Lightning, Rick Peckham. And, uh, Rick, it's been a couple of weeks since we talked to you. I would have to imagine your golf game has gotten some improvement since then.
0: Well, it's a little up and down, but uh, <laughs> it's not for a lack of trying, let's put it that way. So.
1: <laughs> uh, that's good stuff. Um, hey, Rick, we we were talking about some of the scenarios that the league has been throwing around with these potential neutral site NHL cities. You know, kind of bringing everything. In. Do you keep close attention to that? You keep really close tabs on that, or you just kind of come by it here and there when uh, when you hear about it?
0: Well, when a new one uh, comes up, a new idea is presented uh, in the media, and you kind of look for okay, what are the sources on this? Just try to find the the uh, line of thinking on whether it could work, what questions it now brings into play. Uh, What we heard yesterday from uh, Gary Bettman, I thought, you know, while certainly it's not um, a plan they're committing to, it's certainly one that they're looking at with dedicated buildings in each division to house uh, teams and to be able to finish the regular season and move on. I think it's kind of exciting with the possibilities there, but uh, that's easily the best one that we've, come across
2: so far and Rick there was you know Gary Bettman had a sit-down interview yesterday and um, some interesting topics did come about and you know talking about neutral destinations and you know maybe some of the pros and cons that um, those places would have but you know Eric and I were talking about you know maybe an Atlantic division team that's in the hunt that would have you know an opportunity to host a bunch of games and we were you know, throwing around, you know, the pros of having it, you know, in Tampa being a, a city that's been able to host a, a lot of big events and do really well with it. I, I guess the only question would be, what's the ice condition going to look like if you did something like that? But then again, Rick, you're probably talking about the ice condition being an issue for everybody if you're talking about August hockey.
0: Yeah, I think that's the case in a lot of these cities that are under consideration for that. Um but I think Tampa has as good a, uh, a plan as, as anybody would have for that kind of a situation, uh, even among uh, the Lightning and the Panthers, the only two teams in the Atlantic Division that are out of the Northeast, which uh, you would think would be off limits for this kind of an idea in areas of eastern Canada being involved in the Atlantic Division. But with Tampa Bay, we're under less restrictions than South Florida is right now. We've obviously got the facilities, plenty of sheets for practice ice and all of that. So I think that uh, Tampa Bay would be an ideal situation under these circumstances to host for the Atlantic Division. But
2: We might have lost, Rick. Maybe we'll catch okay. back up with the TV voice of the, uh, the Tampa Bay Lighting. Sometimes those connections, when you're doing these things, they can be a little bit rough. But you know, I think Rick probably agrees that, you know, Tampa is a good spot. It's just um, it's a matter of can they pull it off, which they can, and what is the ice going to look like in a situation like that. But to me, I think it would be a no-brainer. The only problem would be we couldn't really enjoy all of these hockey teams in our city because I'm sure there's going to be some isolation <laughs> oh, involved yeah. with everybody, you know? There
1: will be no autograph sessions. There will be no full... Yeah. Uh, possibilities um, but it, you know it would be something that's here and, and kind of put uh, the city uh, in a little bit of a spotlight for sure when we do it and uh, you know the more I think about this ice situation certainly the humidity is not there but you know we see you know the lighting bring in these huge de- dehumidifiers every year at the start of the playoffs and they'd actually be sitting outside the building right now under uh, regular circumstances if, if the playoffs were still uh, going on and taking place With those, combined with the lack of people in the building, I think the ice conditions could be controlled a lot better than you would think on the surface, right? Because you can close off... All the areas, the Zamboni entrance, everything like that, there's a big garage door type setting that doesn't allow the warm air from the inside to even approach the Zamboni entrance and stuff like that. So the more I think about it, I I don't wonder if the ice conditions is something that they're not overly concerned about in in terms of being able to make it playable. I guess the only condition that might worry you is if they're playing multiple games per day on it. That might chop it up a little bit more.
2: I wonder if there's somebody we can reach out to to talk about the ice. I think that might be an interesting conversation because I think, regardless, again of where these games are going to be played, they always talk about the ice is great in Edmonton for various reasons. But I do think it. it we can probably look at this, look at this, and, and maybe see if we can talk to somebody, whether it's with the league or with a, a team that can talk about what it would go, what goes into getting the ice prepared in a way that you know in the summer months. Is playable because I think for a lot of people and players, they probably are going to look at it and say, "Man, especially if you're having multiple teams play on you know an ice surface uh, throughout, it it could get pretty choppy." Yeah, it could. And uh, Rick
1: is back with us. And uh, Rick, I was going to ask you as we talk about these scenarios and the potential of, of maybe Amelie Arena being a possible uh, neutral site, quote unquote. Have you thought about what that might look and sound like from a broadcast standpoint with nobody in the stands and, and how, you know, because, I mean, you guys feed off that energy as well that's in the building. So from from that production standpoint, what that might sound like,
0: I think of uh, situations that we've had in the past, like early in our broadcast careers. I'm sure a lot of play-by-play guys have, have announced in small arenas, small crowds, college games, whatever, and it wasn't an ideal situation in terms of a lot of roaring fans to help create an atmosphere. I also think of, uh, you know, we, we cover for Tampa Bay TampaBayLightning.com, uh, the prospect camp scrimmage. There's certainly not a lot of... Um, crowd noise involved in something like that. I think you just react to the situation. You're you're into the game. You're into the competition. You're just announcing it as it's it's unfolding. Certainly in a larger arena that you're used to having 19,000 fans in there, and there are none, it's going to be uh, a little bit to get used to, but I don't think that's going to be a big thing. I think uh, what's going to be interesting is we always have these mics that are uh, – Placed around the glass to pick up uh, some of the ambient sound on the ice, sticks, pucks, uh, words that you wouldn't uh, broadcast unless you were George Carlin. <laughs> things like that uh, are likely to bleed through in those microphones, and I think that's that's going to require a second look there.
1: That <laughs> I mean, might be more might be more fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Definitely not a PG show, though. <laughs>
2: It, it was also interesting, too, Rick. It seems like some of the, the things that Gary Bettman was discussing, one of them was possibly having the draft while the playoffs were going on or even before, and it would seem like there would be some obvious problems with that. Maybe the biggest one being you know, a team like the Lightning who you know at some point will have to make some hard decisions in the offseason. Clearly, they want to keep their team intact this year to make a run, but not giving a team that flexibility to make some moves at the, uh, the draft to either become cap compliant or, you know, acquire a player or, or just get some draft picks. It would seem like that is something that the league probably needs to rethink if, if they're being honest with themselves.
0: Well, they're going to have to come up with a unique system of conducting the draft, no question about it. And one thing I just picked up on, I wasn't reading in depth today, but You know, teams wouldn't be able to make a trade of players on the roster uh, at the draft to enhance their draft position or or whatever their aim would be. Uh, You know, you can understand that. But I was also reminded of something I looked at the other day when we were talking about the draft from 2005, where there was no 2004-05 and season. And so, you know, what what was going to determine the draft order? Well, apparently, they took the average draft position of the previous three years for all these teams. And, you know, as far as the lottery was concerned and determined it from that. So they came up with a whole different idea, which is, I think what they're going to have to do some sort of a concept that allows for trades after this season has been played, uh, free agency is going to have to be accounted for. Uh, you know, you talk about, Buyouts—they're going to have to adjust that a little bit, I think, under these circumstances. So there's going to be a lot of creative thinking, I think, going on in the NHL offices to accommodate these things and make them as fair as possible for everybody concerned.
1: Again, okay, Rick Peckham joins us here on Power Lunch, and uh, Rick, what what have you been doing with your time since when we talked to you last, other than golfing? Are you know, is, is it been tough to stay inside as much as you can? Is, is the golf outing been enough to kind of you know, give you your daily outside time?
0: That's pretty much it. Um, You know, my wife and I go for a walk through the uh, neighborhood, and, you know, we run into neighbors who are across the street. Everybody's honoring the uh, distancing recommendations, and and, uh, that's about it. I think our weather has been spectacular throughout this whole uh, ordeal. But uh, so we're very fortunate to be where we are in Florida versus I think up in the Northeast and uh, Chicago at some point had an ice storm uh, through this five or six week period. So where you're really cooped up in that kind of a situation, we've been able to get out of the house once in a while and, uh, you know, get done what we need to get done in terms of uh, my wife is usually the one that goes to a store. I haven't been to more than about two stores in four weeks. So, um you know kind of staying to ourselves as far as that's concerned picking up uh food at restaurants and so forth once in a while and um so it's a little easier i think in all of us here in florida in that we have that option of going out for a walk and you can do that safely in some activities that are okay like golf and and uh, uh boating i understand is uh, is okay so you know that's something that i think has given us a chance uh, here in Florida for all of us to uh, to kind of help deal with the situation.
2: I found myself, Rick, for the first time yesterday, I actually put on a mask. <laughs> That's the grocery store. Oh, really? Yeah, it was, uh, uh, you know, I, we had some family. My mom and um, my wife's uh, aunt made some, and they sent it down, and you, know, you wash them, and then you put them on. And I, I tell you what, uh, kudos to... The uh, the medical professionals who have to do have to wear that mask all day long because you put it on for five ten minutes you take it off it is like my goodness you can't breathe. Mad props to them.
0: Oh wow, yeah, it's crazy. You got a masky? Yeah, I mean, you're gonna wear that all day, and in the back of your mind, you're you know you're dealing with patients of all yeah. different types with all different types of uh, situations, and you're just got to be on your mind constantly of safety first, a hundred percent, just making sure that, uh, um, you know, I'm just hoping that you get through this situation uh, with your health intact and uh, Godspeed to those people who were involved in keeping us safe.
1: Yeah. And that's probably going to be part of our new normal when we get on the other side of this right. too, is wearing masks more often out in public. You know, I have one of our neighbors, um, his, his parents and his grandparents are actually from China um, you know, so they've gone over there, not recently, of course, but they've gone over there before. And look, there's a lot of people in China that just do that normally anyway, because for whatever reason, a lot of these type of situations seem to break out from that part of the world. I, that's probably going to end up being something here. Like, I, I we might be in the press box, you know, not on the air, of course, as you know, you guys are. But when we're not on the air, probably have that mask on, right? Just to, so as we're interacting, if we're talking to other people in the press box, you know, when we kind of get the clear for that kind of stuff to happen. I I think that's probably going to be something that we're going to have to deal with uh, at least in the short term uh, when we do get on the other side of this. And that will be different. That will be weird walking around just in public settings and seeing everybody wearing their masks now for good reasons but it's still going to be weird to think about and look about and and do you know and make sure you have that prepared and you know I do have some masks my dad used to be a painter and he's been he's been doing a lot of stuff around the house and one of the things he did was kind of dig through some old boxes so he found some masks he used to use when he was painting so we have some of those around and I've actually ordered. I don't know when they're going to be in, but the, you seen those? They call them gaiters, G-A-I-T-E-R. They're kind of things that you can do as a, you can use it as a bandana, a headband, everything else. But you can also use use it as a neck guard, and then just pull it up uh, over your face to kind of do it that way. So I, you know, those are a little bit easier to breathe through for the masks. But uh, yeah, I, I have some of those coming.
0: Yeah, and just generally the things that we take for granted in terms of player access, and you know we're used to these scrums where you're tightly packed in around a player who's seated at his spot in the locker room. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that gets adjusted because you know that's changing.
2: Yep, the new norm, as we've said uh, before. Um, you know, Rick, I'm wondering. You know, as we get, you know, uh, further away from the last game that was played, at least for these players you wonder what is going to be the biggest challenge for them coming back i mean whether it's getting back on the ice and and getting in game shape or probably mentally knowing that when they do come back there's not going to be anybody in the stands rooting them on and you know that certainly can have an effect on a player's uh, performance
0: well whenever somebody comes back from injury and of course in just about every case well every case, really, uh, leading up to this situation, is they're they're able to skate on their own, they're able to work out on their own, and physically get back to the level that they were at before, but they always talk about the game level timing, and being able to react to situations, and dealing with the emotions of games, and
3: the flow of
0: games, things like that, Um, you know, you're going to have to lump that on top of the conditioning aspect, because even if Players, and I and I've heard one idea floated out there that uh, before teams get on the ice to, you know, start to train for the resumption of play, uh, their facilities and their workout places might be open to just a few players at a time. So even with that, you know, they're not going to be back at the level of conditioning that they're used to being at. And we're used to seeing them at even through a, a normal training camp. Uh, so it's it's going to be a huge adjustment. I think it's going to be a huge adjustment for all of us just to deal with the level of play that we're seeing uh, because there's no possible way that players and teams are going to be uh, that close to where they were before the pause.
1: How about for you, Rick, uh, going through this? I know during preseason games that obviously aren't aired on television, I, I know that you sometimes take a recorder with you and practice to get ready for the broadcast when they start for real. Uh, anything you've been doing, anything that you would have to do to, to get yourself back into shape, so to speak, uh, assuming that you're broadcasting these games?
0: Not really at this point, Eric, but I think we'll get the go-ahead early enough that I can get into my normal routine, which is I've, and I've probably got... Uh, twice as many games on DVR that I normally have in terms of getting back into the flow of, you know, how I'm calling the game, <laughs> kind of remember how to do it. Um, but I'll have plenty of that to look at, also refresh my memory in terms of how players and the team was, were playing before we stopped. And then, you know, there's certain things that I normally do to ramp up for a season that I think I'll have time to do. So um, I'm not worried about being able to get up to where I need to be because, you know, every year we do it.
2: Yep. That's why he's one of the best the professional and uh, Rick Peckham joining us here on Power Lunch. Uh, Rick, last uh, question for me. When you take a look at uh, the league and where everything is right now, and uh, it's pretty clear, uh, at least based off of uh, Gary Bettman's comments, that there is going to be hockey played this year, and I think Eric and I were talking about that at the beginning of the show. When it's going to happen, I don't know, but but certainly it sounds like they're, they're really looking forward to um, crowning a Stanley Cup champ this year, and they're going to do everything they can to fit that in to the schedule this year. And I, I think, at least for a lot of fans, that um, can bring some optimism to a, a pretty downer situation.
0: Yeah, I thought, uh, once again, the announcement that Gary made yesterday in terms of, uh, I guess it was an interview, um, was pretty exciting because there were, you know, it's not concrete information. It's not for sure happening the way that the idea was laid out, but it's, there's more we've seen in the past. And um, I think just the idea itself is pretty exciting because it gets you to a point where you start to think about logistics and how it's going to work and things like that. So I'm very excited by what happened yesterday, and I hope that everything continues to fall into place in terms of making that become the reality, not only from the start of hockey once again, but it certainly gives you an idea of when our lives might be becoming more normal anyway.
1: Last question uh, here for you, Rick, uh, before we let you go. We appreciate you joining us on the show. Uh, the replays of the 0-4 playoff run uh, have been going on. I watched the game the other night, Game 3, against the Islanders. And, um, you know, I, I was around, obviously, for that team, and I've been around the game for 20 years or so. You, you've been around it a little bit longer than I have. I'm amazed to see how different the game was even just 16 years ago compared to how it is now with – the water skiing that took place, the hooking and the holding, the grabbing, all that stuff that went on. Are you amazed at how quickly the game has evolved from where we were even back in '04 to where it is now in terms of how fast and how much better the game is in terms of, you know, those, those skill aspects of it?
0: Yeah, it's, it's always fun to look back at Game 7, uh, Lightning Calgary, right? And you talk about a series that just broke every rule in terms of of the rule book, Uh, even the existing rule book, as it was called back then, I think they broke every rule. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you could just say, well, that's a penalty. Uh, Well, that would be a penalty (laughs) and that would be a penalty. I think it would also be interesting to look at a game from 2005 and six to where we first started to put in the restraining fouls and uh, not put them in. They were in the book for the but, you know, start to emphasize them and make those calls. And uh, I think we'd be uh, chuckling at the number of power plays, I think, that were in the games at that point as everybody just looked around and said, hey, wait a minute, what was that, you know? So it, it has come a long way. I think it's definitely for the better. I agree with you. The speed of it now is, is incredible. And I've watched a few Stanley Cup highlight videos from the 50s that NHL Network puts on every once in a while. They'll run uh, highlight films from 1950 through 57. And you not only get to see Jean Beliveau and Rocket Richard and Gordie Howe and Sid Abel and all these people play, uh, you see how the game was played, and you see the skill level of the players. And, you know, limited, of course, by the straight blade sticks and the old skates that, (laughs) obviously, uh, you weren't very agile in those skates but you really get an appreciation
1: for how fast it's all become. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot different world to watch the games even back just that short period of time ago when Lenny won the Stanley Cup. Uh, but it, it, it's been a lot of fun to go back and watch those games and, and relive that a little bit. So, um, Rick, uh, thanks so much for your time. Uh, keep improving on the golf game as best you can. And uh, can't uh, thank you enough and look forward to being able to see you at the rink hopefully sometime in the very near future.
0: Look forward to that.
1: Thank you, guys. Take care. Thanks for Rick Rick Peckham there joining us. And, uh, you know, that's one thing that that, kind of caught my eye, and uh, I don't know if you've caught any of the replays, uh, Greg, but uh, very interesting the other night to watch that game. First of all, it was the the Metro TV New York broadcast. We got uh, Howie Rose and Joe Micheletti on that rebroadcast. But uh, watching the game, was really kind of cool and, and trying to remember, you know, as I was up in the press box watching uh, those games and kind of how things develop. You forget some of the names that were on the Islanders at that time. Alexi Yashin was a big part of their team. But the one thing that I found very interesting was listening to just an off-the-wall sort of comment between Howie Rose and Joe Micheletti talking about how the cap, the draft was coming up, the Capitals had just won the lottery, and Howie Rose saying... Boy, if this Ovechkin guy is as good as everybody thinks he is, they've really won the lottery. Boy, how <laughs> profound was that
2: statement? That's a um uh, a portent of things to come, so to speak. That was uh that was a pretty good call on his end. That changed uh, the complexion of that franchise for a uh, a long, long time. But you're right about the the uh, the broadcast in general and the way the game was being played. And I just found there was there was not a lot of not a lot of room to operate you know and that was one of the the things that that caught my attention was you know we always know I think in the playoffs they let things go the clutching and the grabbing which infuriates me because I think a lot of people are like look you want to make the game more consistent one of the ways to do it is to be pretty strict when it comes to what a call is and what's not be consistent but I think for me that's what stood out um, when it comes to uh, the way the game was played so um, yeah, the the comment about Ovechkin is interesting. <laughs> and how about the second overall pick in that year's draft? You've got back to back Russians who are going to be Hall yep. of Famers. If getting Malkin. Yeah, Malkin, I mean that that's pretty it's pretty incredible when you think about the impact both of those players had. And then of course we know what happened, you know, with the lockout and then the following year when everybody had an opportunity to draft Sidney Crosby, which was just an unbelievable situation in and of itself that the league was. Um, giving every team the opportunity to, to have that pick, you know, arguably uh, the best prospect to come along since you know who knows, but that uh, you you have the sense that maybe we're going down that path a bit in terms of the unknown right yeah. now, and it'll be interesting to see how things like that play out. So, so you were in
1: Pittsburgh in 05. Um, yeah, going through that. What what, what, what was the hype? Do, do you oh. remember at all the talk about the you know, the the draft lottery and when the Penguins won it and the and an opportunity oh. to draft Sydney?
2: Well, it was just a pandemonium because don't remember Pittsburgh wasn't any good. Yeah. Well <laughs> and there you know, they had scouted Kansas City as a potential. I know. And that was real you and, know, yeah. I, I think for a lot of people they felt like that wasn't gonna happen because Mary Lemieux was just you know, such an icon in that city, had come back and saved the franchise a couple of different times when he first was drafted, then coming back out of retirement. Um, and really getting the team back to a, a place where they were you know, dominant. But I can remember I was a young producer at the time, and I can remember when they had the, the winner of that draft and um, the talk show host who I was producing for, a long-time talk show host in the market, you know, real kind of nuts and bolts guy and, and didn't show a ton of emotion he literally screamed for joy yeah in some ways you could say it was unprofessional <laughs> but he screamed for joy because we were rolling on it as well you know just to record it and, and play it back but when that happened and there were a lot of you know conspiracy theorists who knows you might have been one of them that felt like Absolutely that was, was for that was for Pittsburgh to uh to get back and be relevant again and and give them give Mario you know throw him a bone and and let them get Cindy Crosby but Needless to say, that draft pick, along with Malkin, and then you had Marc Andre Fleury, was the um, that was your core. Ends up winning, mm-hmm. you know, three three Stanley Cups, you know, at least with the the Crosby Malkin uh, tandem. You know, I'm, I'm not I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any stretch of the imagination, but it it made you
1: think and pause, right? Okay, For sure. There's Pittsburgh, a team that's talking about relocation, uh, and they win the lottery. Now they weren't a very good team. I I remember. In o four that o four cup year, the Lightning they they beat the Penguins nine nothing in the game. And yeah. J.S. Aban, I'm sure you remember him, John Sebastian
2: well, Aban Sebass. Well,
1: <laughs> he was a net for all nine of those goals uh, the Lightning Lord, scored that year. Yeah, they were not a very good team, so they no. they probably deserved it, much as in the same way that probably Detroit deserves the opportunity to draft yeah. Lafreniere. Not that he's Sidney Crosby, but he is the consensus. Uh, number one overall prospect that's uh, going to be available this year in the draft, and he is a guy who could really boost a franchise and, um, you know, just maybe not in the sense that, you know, Crosby did for Pittsburgh, but he has that potential. He's a very talented guy. I remember watching him at the World Juniors for the first time this past year, and, um, you know, for the year that Detroit has had for a franchise that had so much success and what, like, 24, 25 consecutive years of reaching the postseason – um, you know, that this is sort of uncharted territory for them to have these high draft picks and the historically bad and the salary cap era season they've had. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, I if they end up with a first-round draft pick, not or the first pick overall, not because of conspiracies, but just maybe karma deserves to go back in their direction.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, look, uh, they stink. And <laughs> if you stink, you, you probably should— be able to get the the first overall pick. I mean, I think, you know, speaking of Pittsburgh, there was, you know, and I think this definitely did happen the year that they drafted Mare of Mew. They did tank this season because, yep. you know, Eddie Johnson yep. purposely was shuffling guys, you know, to and from the minors and guys who were playing well, <laughs> all, all of a sudden <laughs> maybe found themselves getting demoted. And, you know, I, I think that was a tank job. Now, might be the greatest tank job we've ever seen because, you know, Mary Lemieux certainly was was one of the greatest players of all time, if not the greatest, and that really paid off for the franchise. But I, I think Detroit did it honestly. And, you know, I they think did. Steve Eisman understands that uh, he needs to get as many draft picks and as talented players in that system as, as humanly possible. One way to do that is to be rewarded for being awful. They were, so they should have the first overall pick. We'll see how that all plays out.
1: Yeah, that, uh, that year heading into the Lemieux draft, that's pretty much a reason why there is a draft lottery nowadays yes. because the league did not want that type of stuff uh, taking place and happening. I look, they franchise players. Obviously, Lemieux certainly changed the fortunes around the franchise at that time as well. We saw what Crosby did. We've seen what uh, Ed Conor McDavid has done for Edmonton, even though they had all those other uh, first overall picks, but what he's meant to sort of their – Mini resurgence here the last couple of years. So those players certainly can make a difference and can be usually instantaneous, but uh, there's no doubt that uh, that that's a big reason why there's a draft lottery in place right now. Uh, let's go ahead and take our final break. Uh, you are listening to Power Lunch here on Lightning Power Play. I'm Eric Erlinson. He is Greg Linnelli. We'll be back right after this.
0: Greg Linnelli and Eric Erlinson are the perfect social distancing distraction for your lunch hour. This is Power Lunch, only on Lightning Power Play on the iHeartRadio app.
2: By the way, E, did you know who Tampa Bay's draft pick was in that 0-4 draft in the first round? Matt, props to you if you know.
1: The 0-4 draft or the 0-5 draft? Draft, draft? The Ovechkin draft or the Crosby draft?
2: The Ovechkin draft. 0-4
1: Oh, man. Well, that was the other one they cup, so they would have picked last. Um, was that that draft, too? That's bad on me for not remembering. I remember who they drafted in 05. Uh, that was us. Vladimir Mahalik. Ooh. Um, but I can't, off the top of my head, remember who they drafted in
2: 04. Do you remember Andy Rogers?
1: Andy Rogers, I do. I do he was supposed to be a, a good size skating defenseman um, who just never quite developed into what they had hoped for um, as a D man? So, yeah, I, 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 now that you mentioned that for sure, I do remember Andy Rogers um, never played. Not quite coming to the type of defenseman they thought he could be. 6'5,
2: 206, and never played in the NHL.
1: Now nope, he had some injury issues too. Yeah, uh, I think early on in his career, I remember one time him being in town either the year he was drafted or the year after he was drafted with some medical issues. They brought him in to kind of look at it. So I know he had some injury issues that could probably uh, sidelined or, or you know, kind of put his development uh, in in jeopardy as well. So, uh, but Andy Rogers, yeah,
2: bringing me yeah, back memories, the man. Yeah, we have the NFL draft starting today, you know, a lot of eyeballs will be on that. But it, it does speak yeah. to you know, we we bring it back to the NHL and I think we're gonna try and maybe get somebody on next week to talk about this upcoming draft that you know we talked about drafting last in that specific year and a lot of people say that's a throwaway. But in today's NHL we I mean it seems like players are more developed this year heading into the draft than they've been, you know, say twenty years ago. And we've seen the lightning over the years getting guys in the mid to late rounds that have come in and and contributed and played very well so you know maybe there used to be a a thinking that you know if you're drafting 30th overall you're really not getting a a great player but I feel like it's twofold the scouting's a lot better today so that's probably not an excuse but also too I think the players are better today at least physically and maybe you have a better idea if a guy is going to be able to come in and be productive because of how physical some of these players are as opposed to where they were 25, 30 years ago.
1: For sure. There's no doubt that the year-round process... Of what youth sports and minor sports are, uh, junior league sports, especially in the hockey. I mean, it is a year-round thing. You know, they're they have they're hiring trainers at the age of fifteen. I remember, I think Connor McDavid started working out with Gary Roberts when he was fifteen or sixteen years old. So, you know, he's an exception, of course. But, you know, you have that type of situation where these players are very in tune, and they sign with agents or advisors, as they're called, at that time of their career to kind of steer them down this path. So. They're so much more well-prepared physically, mentally, everything that kind of goes along with it. They're identified at a young age as somebody who could potentially reach that level. But I still look at it like I was just reading something the other day about uh, Leon Dreisaitl and where he was picked by Edmonton. You know, um, when they picked Dreisaitl, when the Oilers did, Calgary was right behind him, and they were ecstatic that they got Sam Bennett. Right, because mm-hmm. you have identified. So it's still. It's still you're basing everything still on projections. So even as well more well prepared these players are coming in, you don't know how they're going to be when they get to the NHL. All we have to do is get Mike Carrington back on the line and talk mm-hmm. about some of the draft picks these Sabers have had, uh, some high draft picks at the end of the day. So they can they're definitely coming in more well prepared. They understand what's ahead of them, but there still has to be a, a you know a, a more fast tracked or understanding of how to get to the NHL level. And you know what we have Mitchell. Stevens on our show tomorrow. He's a, I think he's a prime example of that. He's a second round pick by the team. You know, this was, what was he, the 15 draft, I think Mitchell Stevens was, uh, going all the way back to, to, so it's been five years since he's been able to come up and make an impact at the NHL level, so, you know, there is a, a process that these players still have to get through, and that's where, you know, some of these middle-round draft picks can really pay off, and there's no better example of that than this Lightning team with the Sorelli, with the Braden Point, with uh, Mitchell Stevens, as I mentioned, Andre Pilat, guys like that uh, that come in. But, um, yeah, it, it uh, this draft in particular is going to be pretty interesting uh, because of everything that's going to be happening and the fact that so many of these players missed out on uh, additional opportunities
2: to be scouted. It's funny you mentioned Sam Bennett. Turned out to be a pretty good player. Still is. Not bad. Not bad. He's not, bad. Th- He's not Leon yeah, Dreisaitl, man. but pretty yeah, good player. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's one of those things that's funny. I don't know people projected Leon Dreisaitl to be what he is, and I'm not sure people had projected Sam Bennett to be who he is right now, which is basically a third or fourth liner who's a grinder who can maybe chip in offensively here and there. I don't think that was his projection coming in. And for Dreisaitl, I'm not sure anybody projected him being a 50-goal scorer and one of the top five, top ten players in the National Hockey League. So it's it's funny how those things – and I think if you're a scout too – there's only so much you can project with a player. I mean, if a player just has an insane work ethic, his practice habits change. That's not necessarily your fault if you miss that. I think your job is to get guys who can get to the NHL, and then some of that is on the player to develop, in addition to the coaching staff.
1: Yeah, you know, I remember having that conversation with Al Murray, right, the head scouting director scouting director for the Lightning, assistant general manager, and that's one of the things that he has talked about is that you know they look for certain elements. You know what's in their toolbox now at the age of eighteen, and can you project that out? But he says this is this is this is his job. He's supposed to go out there and identify the type of players that Steve Eiserman and now Julian Broussard we're looking for? What are the attributes? What are their strengths? Where are the areas that they need to improve? What can we do to help improve them? So he, he identifies those players, and then he pushes them on. They are now on to the next level of progression to where they get involved with, you know, Stacey Roost and, you know, um, you know, the, the development side of things, and they get into the summer programs, and they get these things. So it, it, there's so much that still goes on the player, even after you're drafted, to put yourself on that path, you know, and then you know you look back here, uh, at that uh, f- uh, 14 draft, uh, where you know dry went third overall, who was second? Sam Reinhart, Buffalo Sabers. He has not turned into anywhere near what you would think a number two overall pick would be. So it's still all about draft and developing. Drafting is important to find those attributes, but then you have to find a way to develop players to get them to be, you know, players that can contribute
2: at the NHL level. Yeah, that's a good point by you. Hey, uh, before we sign off, we told you that Gary Bettman sat down with Ron McClain from Sportsnet uh, yesterday on his show. They talked about a number of different things. One of the topics came up was the venue and where these games would be played. Ian and I have been talking about, you know, maybe logistically, does Tampa Bay make sense if you're looking for a place to host a bunch of teams in one city? But here was Gary Bettman and... Uh, Ron McLean talking about venues when play does resume.
0: You saw Elliot Friedman, I'm sure, reported that you're looking at four cities connected to the NHL divisions versus the neutral site proposals. Not, which not
3: necessarily based divisional based. It'll be four cities if that's the route we go. And by the way, all of this is contingent. Nothing has been decided. This is just part of the modeling I talked about mm-hmm. where we're making sure we're prepared for any eventuality. Maybe it'll be two cities. It's, it's, it's not something that we can predict right at this moment, but this is part of the contingencies. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, by division, although the centralization may be that by division, but the particular location could be anywhere that isn't the hot spot and has what we need, both in terms of the arena and having practice facilities, because if you bring in seven or eight clubs to a particular facility and you're playing lots of games, uh, on a regular basis without travel, there does need to be ice for practice.
2: So Gary Bettman, maybe giving us an idea e, of uh, what they're thinking when it comes to venues. He talked about you know, the draft as well in that interview. And um, you know, I think anytime you have a chance to hear the commissioner speak on these things, it's always good to maybe get uh, in his uh, uh, mind a bit to see what's happening. Well, then how about that? Uh, aspect where he
1: talked about it's not necessarily divisional based even though the three supposed front runners are divisional based and you know I suppose it is a possibility that again you know uh, talking about the Atlantic division teams that maybe they could be playing their games somewhere else and not necessarily in an Atlantic division team and look uh, the the virus is going to dictate this the the health officials the CDC you know the Canadian uh, equivalent of the CDC is going to weigh in on all this stuff and, and see where things stand. So um, that's the that's a one aspect that kind of caught my attention. There is that it's not necessarily division based. I think they'd like to make it division based to kind of give a little bit of that feel to it, especially if you're going to use maybe four different cities to make this uh, work. Um, you know, but at least at least now you have a little bit more of a understanding of what the league is thinking. I think that's the key point here because there's so many, again, we've mentioned it many times, there's so many unanswered questions involving all of this that at least now there's a a path that maybe we have some answers or at least some, an outline of what things might look like. And I think that's the encouraging
2: thing uh, taken out of all of this. It is. And we'll continue to keep you abreast of that situation as uh, it unfolds tomorrow should be a lot of fun. Mitchell Stevens will stop by you. It'll be good to hear from Mitchell. We talked to uh, Yanni Gord before, also spoke to Scott Wedgwood. So we're trying to bring you some players uh, from Syracuse and the Lightning, kind of getting an idea of what they're experiencing right now. And then we're going to replay the interview we had with Erin Andrews. And she's out in LA and I'm sure her plate is full, but she's also trying to navigate uh, this situation and um, seeing what's best for her and, and her career in terms of Broadcasting, which I think we have to think outside the box, all of us to be uh, somewhat entertaining, and you know, Aaron Andrews no different. So it'll be fun to uh, replay that interview again tomorrow.
1: Yeah, and I'm looking forward to hearing Mitchell uh, answer the question that we'll ask him about what kind of a Packer Scott Wedgwood is, because we had Scott Wedgwood on a couple weeks ago, and he was actually having to pack up Mitchell Stevens' apartment in Syracuse and have to send things down to him. So uh, I'm interested to see what kind of a packer Scott Wedgwood is in in, in terms of packing up um, Mitchell Stevens' apartment.
2: Yep, that'll be a lot of fun. So uh, keep it tuned to uh, Lightning Power Play from noon to 1 here on the show, and uh, we will uh, bring you some new content like we do each and every day. E, good job as always, buddy. We appreciate it. We'll do it again tomorrow. Thanks, Greg. All right, Eric Ronaldson there, Steve Versnick there as well, behind the scenes. Thanks to Rick Peckham. And you for listening. We always appreciate it. We'll be with you again tomorrow from noon to one. It's the Power Lunch on Letting Power Play.